Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. All right, today we're talking with my friend Hunter Motz, and he is just an absolutely brilliant guy. This is going to be kind of an instant classic show here. We're going to talk about why having certain genes for certain talents is a fallacy and actually an excuse process as well. We're going to talk about why perspective and attitude can change the way that you learn and something called the worst idea ever, the idea that people are born smart or that you either have it or you don't, which is completely untrue and there's no science behind it. This is a really interesting sort of life-changing realization. We're also gonna talk about why stories of early genius are actually marketing devices and the 10,000 hour rule, quality of practice versus the amount of practice. And if you learn one thing, you can learn anything. Also, we cover the idea that emotions are a nuclear fuel for learning. Changing your perspective equals changing your results. Thinking about what you can't do is a waste of your intention and why that is. And the power of failure and embracing mistakes. All this and more on this awesome episode of the show with Hunter Motz of The Straight A Conspiracy. Enjoy. So Hunter, first of all, thanks for joining us and then coming out here to LA to this vacant property <laughs> where I'm now doing the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for coming to my city, LA. Yeah, yeah you know, I did live here before. And yeah. I will admit I had another reason for coming here, but I'll let you think that I drove down here just to talk to you. It would have been worth it, I'm sure. But I did come down here for man school's Caleb Bacon proposed to his fiance, and so he had an engagement party. He, did, awesome. he actually did it in a pretty creative way. We were talking a little bit before the show. He had the Hollywood Bowl type thing, and he actually, I rented out the Hollywood Bowl. He said, look on your fiance's face, priceless, running out the Hollywood Bowl for the proposal, $2 million or something. You could just sort of tell who the slow birds were. Did you really spend $2 million on running out the Hollywood Bowl? And he's like, I'm a writer. Yeah, <laughs> not an Arab yeah. oil shake. Podcast is doing good, but not, not that good. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty funny. Um, and it was a great proposal, so he's engaged, and he's probably going to announce it on his show, but now I'm just going to ruin it for That's him. That's right. By doing That's it right. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> stealing the thunder. And then you guys can have a podcast war where it's right. like, you know, it can all stem, he's like Hatfield and McCoy style from this one right. incident. Well, he'll be like, I heard that you're going to secretly propose to your girlfriend at some point and just blow it for me. That's right. Reveal <laughs> like, the date, the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tweeted at her. <laughs> Here you go. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about what you do. You came highly recommended. And then when we had our introductory talk, I was like, why aren't you famous yet? <laughs> because what you talk about is extremely important mm -hmm. to the point where it's one of those things where, uh, why haven't I heard about this? Maybe it's bullshit. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> you know when you when you hear something like, oh my God, there's this thing in coffee that kills you and my coffee is the only one that doesn't have it? How come not? Gee, Everybody I wonder who you this. could be referencing right. with that comment. But like, <laughs> that's the thing, right, is, is, wait a minute, how come we don't know all these things about the brain? The truth is, right, we you don't examine brains for a living in the physical sense. So somewhere around people are assembling this knowledge, but you yeah. just happen to explain it in a way that doesn't make me fall asleep immediately. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I worked at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory and lived in the house of James Watson of Watson and Crick, who discovered the double helical structure of DNA. Oh, you did. Won the okay. Nobel and all that sort of stuff. So Everyone knows that living in the same basement as a Nobel Prize winner <laughs> is basically the same thing as being one yourself. Well, I, I would like to believe that it's like cooties and that it rubs off. Unfortunately, the Nobel Committee doesn't agree. All right. Well, whatever. You got, you know what? In my mind, <laughs> thanks. You're, you're on that, equal Jordan. footing. You know, I spent a year at the lab, and the thing that most struck me was just how much science had been done 
that the public had no idea about. You know, scientists focus on, you know, figuring things out, and they don't really put a high priority on communicating it. They don't really put a high priority on putting those ideas together with the ideas of other scientists. There's a guy called Vaclav Smil, who Bill Gates says is the guy we should all be reading. There's a Wired interview about it. Oh, wow. And Vaclav Smil said that the problem with academics is that they're like people at the bottom of a well staring up at a tiny sliver of sky and thinking it's the entire sky. They, oh, wow. You know, so you have neuroscientists who study one particular protein in the brain, and they're really focused on that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have psychologists who study one particular aspect of human psychology. And the amazing thing, the interesting thing, is not what happens when they each focus on their tiny piece, but what happens when you put those pieces together. Sure. And yeah. so that's basically what we started doing is, you know, we started working with students, and we would hear them say things like, oh, I didn't get the math gene. I don't have a natural ear for languages. Right. I'd majored in biochemistry at Harvard. And so when I heard kids say, I didn't get the math gene, I was like, what is this math gene that these yeah. teenagers know about mm -hmm. that the Harvard biochem department has not found anything out about. Right. And so then I started looking through the research. And it turns out that while we've never found a math gene, we have found... It's it. next to the gay gene. Yeah. <laughs> the elusive gay yeah, gene, yeah. which is in and of itself, like the idea of genes that may or may not exist, that's something mm -hmm. that the public debates all the time. Yeah. And it's not grounded in any science. It's basically they have some sort of agenda, right? Yeah, and, of course. The yeah. Like gay gene being a perfect example, yeah. right? Like quote unquote, if they find one, then people go, see, it's a health thing and it's a medical thing and we can't judge people for it. Mm -hmm. But then people are like, but I want to be hateful and judge people for it. <laughs> exactly. So let's deny that that exists or whatever. You're not going to resolve the argument that way. And I think fundamentally right. it misses the point, the whole born this way. But that's a separate conversation. Yeah. In terms of the math gene, the reason why a kid wants to tell you that they didn't get the math gene is really, really simple. Yeah. So they don't have to study. So it's not their fault. They got to see so that it's basically out of their hands and they don't have to feel bad about it. But the interesting thing is, is that there's a huge amount of research that's been done on what people believe about their intelligence and how those beliefs affect their choices. And not surprisingly, if you don't think you got the math gene, well, guess what? You're not going to do extra practice problems. You're not going to talk to your teacher. You're not going to seek help. In essence, you're not going to try. Right. It's like people who say, oh, you know, it's fun, that the art of charm, you teach guys this, but, you know, everyone knows you're born with it. I wasn't born with the gift of gab, and I'm mm -hmm. thinking... I didn't say anything till I was three and a half. My parents thought I was retarded. <laughs> then in school, I was quiet because I didn't want to get my butt kicked mm -hmm. slash be made fun of. And now I can't shut up. So it's clearly not genetic. It's something developed. And also, it's really convenient to say, yeah, I don't have the charisma gene or I don't have the art of charm built in because it's easier than going, well, it looks like I have a ton of work to do on myself. And that's a really uncomfortable thought process that the next three years are going to be me consistently pushing myself outside my comfort zone so I can be happy. It's easier to go, well, God didn't want me to be happy or right. whatever. The fates didn't want me to be happy. Right. Whatever kind of thing that goes in there. And there's so many people that say, oh, you know, I was just born with a gene that's, the, like you said, the ear for languages. Mm -hmm. I get that all the time because people go, oh, man, you know, you speak multiple languages. That's so cool. You were just born with an ear for languages. <laughs> I got C's and even lower in French all the way through high school my parents thought when I wanted to be an exchange student, they were like, okay, but maybe you should go to England or something because <laughs> you are not a language guy, man. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's going to be tough for me. But yeah, it's Germany. Everybody speaks English. And of course, mm -hmm. I ended up in East Germany, dot, 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 learned German really, really, really well in a very short amount of time without really any formal study. Guess I had an ear for languages, right? But it really has nothing to do with that because the first few months that I was in Germany, I was terrible at it. Everybody mm -hmm. was passing me because I had a crappy attitude about mm -hmm. it. And then when I went, I'm going to be miserable here. I should just go home or learn German, make friends, quit crying. <laughs> That's when things started to just take off. And the, what happens is there's a change in perspective, right? There's a way in which you're thinking of French, which French is, you know, you probably in high school did not particularly like French people. You didn't want to particularly be part of people who spoke French, the culture didn't excite you, all of that sort of stuff. Whereas you had a very clear reason why you wanted to learn German. Yeah, yeah. And plus, my French teacher was this old crow who was like, memorize this mm -hmm. verb table of this irregular verb, and then come in tomorrow and fill out the verb table. And I'm thinking, why would I do that when right. I have video games? And there's a really, really simple thing that would have changed that mm -hmm. if your French teacher was hot. 
Yeah, and then, sure. <laughs> you know, That's true. If you had had, you know, Letitia Casta hot level of French teacher with super sexy mm-hmm. accent, you know, it was very funny when I was in high school, there was almost all of the math teachers were men with the exception of, and I'm going to say her name, Do and it. I hope that she's out there, Miss Porter. Right. And Miss Porter, she used to work for like Arthur Anderson. She was in accounting or consultancy or whatever. But so you, she used to come in every day to work in like this really sexy pinstripe like skirt with like a pinstripe blazer uh-huh. and you know she would write things on the projector which required leaning over oh, and man. all this sort of stuff and it was really funny because amazingly everybody wanted to be in mrs porter's class suddenly sure. the kids who were in the class below started doing much better right. the kids who are in the class above started doing much worse right. you know there was a clear emotional reason why these people wanted to be doing well in front of Miss Porter and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But they also wanted to make sure they never did so well that they got promoted. Of course, right. Yeah. Like, oh, you're about to graduate from my class. Oh, I guess I better throw the book away and start <laughs> over. Exactly. It's funny that we can sort of look back to those emotional connections and see and see where the motivation is. Obviously, the trick, quote-unquote trick, would be to figure out how to set up those psychological motivations to learn pretty much anything that we want to learn that doesn't seem to be coming, quote unquote, naturally Mm -hmm. to us. Sure, some people love studying things on their own. You know, you see people who study marketing on the internet or something, and they're like, they're just plowing into it. They don't need psychology to make it happen. In order to get me to want to do that, we got to figure out a way to explain why I have to learn it slash make it fun and interesting for me. That's right. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Basically, we need to bridge the gap between the science of the brain and the human psychology of motivation. That's right. Well, and that's the interesting thing is that when people have the experience in school, like, okay, yeah, sure, you're saying it's not genetic, but, you know, I found this subject really easy and I found this subject really hard. Well, that's the important point is the Mm -hmm. difference is not genetic. It's emotional. You know, it is our emotional experience that makes the difference in how we're learning and all of that sort of stuff. And I think the place where this is clearest is we say, I feel stupid. And there's yeah. a reason why we say, I feel stupid. And that's because stupid is actually a feeling. Specifically, it's the feeling of shame. You know, you and if you look at the behaviors that students engage in and that people, you know, at every level of business and finance engage in it too, when they make a mistake, If they take that mistake personally and they feel stupid, they bury that mistake because it's shameful and they want to hide it. So you see people wad up their tests and put them in the bottom of their backpack never to see the light of day. Well, that's the opposite of how learning works. Learning is all about getting your mistakes out, looking at the things that aren't working, exposing them to light, and then basically figuring out what went wrong and what do you need to do differently. What you see is the kids who take their mistakes personally, the adults who take their mistakes personally, they set themselves up into this pattern of avoiding their mistakes and therefore repeating them. And the people who are comfortable with their mistakes have this very different idea of intelligence actually engage with those mistakes and learn from them interesting so it really does come down to sort of your attitude towards mistakes and failure which in our culture failing it's changing now especially in places like silicon valley Mm -hmm. where they're trying like fail faster Mm -hmm. i think is probably a lot of companies mottos out there and startups out there and there's always guys breaking things and hacking things Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and trying to figure out how to poke holes and stuff because that's how you innovate. But when I was growing up, and I wager this is still true for large parts of America, if you don't do well on something, it's because you're a bad person. That's exactly <laughs> right. And yeah. that's fundamentally the problem. And mm-hmm. that's the, the big idea. You know, the classic dialogue that I'm sure you've had many, many times, right? They say, oh, but I'm just not naturally charming. That's right. something I can't learn and all that sort of stuff. And then you say, yes, you can, but you have to work at it. And then they say, well, you're just saying that because you're you. Or you're just saying that because you want me to buy your crap. Exactly. Yeah. And the point is, is that what's really happening is, is that most of what we say, most of what we believe is emotional. It has no correlation to reality. A kid who is 13 and having trouble understanding algebra knows nothing about genetics. Right. <laughs> but right. they believe in a math gene because they feel stupid. What happens is, is that very often you'll have parents and teachers saying, you can do anything you put your mind to, which is true mm-hmm. and fits with all of the latest neuroscience, but it doesn't feel true. And so right. rather than arguing with what's being said, what you have to do is you have to understand the feeling, deal with the feeling, and fix that because that's what needs to be changed. Yes, and we'll talk about how to do that in a little bit, but I want to talk sort of about this cultural genius myth mm-hmm. that's been 
I guess, invading the American psyche because I don't think it's helpful. I mean, you see things like America's Got Talent or whatever, and there's a five-year-old Mozart or, <laughs> you know, even math genius kids who they're jotting down fractals or something on a napkin at McDonald's next to their Happy Meal, <laughs> right? You hear about that all the time. And so people kind of expect that talent either flows to you mm -hmm. naturally, early, and in huge amounts, mm -hmm. or you're just an average Joe who's never going to make it. That's right. right. That is a myth that has been built over the last 150 years. We've all heard in America, we hear these stories like, you know, Mozart composed his first masterpiece at the age of five. Newton discovered gravity when he was hit on the head by an apple. Edison invented the light bulb. Well, guess what? All of these three stories are not true. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, he didn't discover gravity when he got hit on the head with an apple, but it's a great parable to tell kids <laughs> exactly. that explains what gravity is in a way that they can remember. It. Exactly. And that's probably and, all it's ever been. And more importantly, it's a marketing scheme. What happened was is that at the time, you know, scientists really believed in the ideas of basically Descartes, the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. And Voltaire wanted to destroy Descartes and get him out of the picture and get everybody on board with the new science, which was Newton. And he knew Voltaire was never particularly hot in math. And so he didn't have the math gene. He did not have yeah. the math gene. And actually, funnily enough, because, you know, now so much of it is we hear about, you know, women are not as good as math. Well, he had to get a woman to explain the math to him. There was this very <laughs> famous mathematician named Amélie de Châtelier, who was his mistress and also his math tutor. Wow. And together they wrote this book. Living that the dream. Yeah, living the tutor. dream. Yeah. Banging the math teacher, banging Mrs. Porter. <laughs> um, but so, you know, together they basically put together this book he understood that most people were like him. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand math. But what they did understand is they understood a cat fight. And yeah. it was a cat fight between Descartes and Newton. And, you know, were you team Descartes or were you team Newton? Wow. What could you get excited by? And he had this great story of the apple, which was a story that everybody could tell and that could easily be explained at a cocktail party. At a cocktail party, even if you understand the calculus behind, you know, gravity, you're probably the person you're talking with does not. And is not going to care to exactly. learn, you know, three martinis deep. That's, yeah. that's right. But everybody can appreciate the story of the apple. And so it became this story that had the power to be able to move and switch people over. The irony is that there was a guy named Sir Arthur Eddington who wanted to displace the ideas of Newton with the ideas of a guy named Einstein. Ah. And he did the same thing, which is that you transform the math, which is not particularly interesting to most people, to a cat fight, a scientific cat fight between Newton and Einstein. And basically, Einstein was the boy wonder. And did you want to be with the old, boring thing? Right. Or did you want to be with the young, exciting boy wonder? The super, yeah, the prodigy exactly. who's clearly going to make it in advance of the other guy because he's the latest and greatest. That's right. And so these sorts of stories, which we can all understand on a very, very emotional level, have become, instead of understanding them as myths, we understand them as realities. We really right. believe that Einstein emerged knowing all of these answers. Right. He, yeah, he came out of the womb, and <laughs> even when he was bad in school, which is what he said all the time, it was like, oh, well, he was just bored because he was a freaking genius. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I had crap grades in French, actually, and other <laughs> subjects for that matter, telling my mom, you know, Einstein had bad grades, yeah. and my mom was like, I got bad news for you. <laughs> Einstein was a genius. You're not a genius. <laughs> I remember that conversation really clearly. And it's funny because I'm going to make her listen to this podcast now. Too. Good, good. On <laughs> Mother's like, Day. See, yeah, exactly. <laughs> On Mother's Day, I'm going to be like, here's something you should uh, check out. It's not yeah. edited yet, but you, you'll get something. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing is, is that when you actually look at what Einstein said, he hated this. He was not the guy who basically created all of these myths. And he repeatedly said, you know, this disparity between what the public believes about me and mm -hmm. what I actually am is so vast, right? There's a huge, huge difference. And yeah, there's this quote that I really, really love, which is Einstein said, it's not that I'm so smart. It's that I stick with problems longer. Right. Everyone's like, oh, I don't want to know that. Well, they have the, yeah. well, but also they have the same experience that, you know, you get when you tell people, oh, charm can be learned. Right. They're like, oh, yeah, Einstein, you're saying that because, mm -hmm. you know, you're a magical unicorn right. and I'm not a magical unicorn. And, you know, as a gray, boring, dull horse, mm -hmm. I'm going to sit here and feel sad and not do anything. Right. I mean, people say all, things a lot like, well, maybe you can learn it, but I'm too short. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you're about an inch and a half shorter than me. And I can't <laughs> even tell until we stand next to each other. Yeah. Or I'm too fat. And I'm thinking... You can do something about that. You know that, right? <laughs> or, oh, well, I'm a natural introvert. Well, yeah. actually, all tests show that I am, too, mm -hmm. which is funny because I'm a talk show host, essentially. <laughs> but 
all that means is that I recharge by chilling mm-hmm. and not going to a loud party or something like that, which right. I also enjoy doing. And right. it's because it doesn't trigger anxiety for me anymore. Mm-hmm. But it certainly did. And I know plenty of tested scientific extroverts who have massive amounts of social anxiety. It, those things are independent of each other. That's right. But it's a lot easier to go, well, you know, I didn't get the math gene. Have you read Susan Cain's book, Quiet? I have not, actually. It's on my shelf, along with a million other books, but yeah. It's really, really good. I mean, it's the subtitle is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Right, With all of these things, it doesn't really matter. There's a way that you can use that. Because fundamentally, the most charming thing you can do is listen. Everybody loves talking about themselves. And if you give somebody a forum to talk about themselves, they're going to think, oh, wow, you're so charming, so interesting, and all that sort of stuff. Dale Carnegie says the best way to get people interested in you is to become interested in them. Mm -hmm. There's also a quote from somebody whose name I can't remember. I'm sure someone's going to email it in. But she went out with the two, I guess, prime ministers or whatever of England or something like that. And, you know, after I went out with Sir So-and-so, I thought he was the smartest man in all of the United <laughs> Kingdom or all of England. And then she's like, but then when I went out with this other, you know, legendary whoever, Sir Walter Raleigh or something, I thought I was the smartest person in all mm-hmm. of England. And that's the key. When somebody is around you and they feel amazing, they love you mm-hmm. because of the way you make them feel, right? That's right. This is a great time to note that people are actually not born smart. That's right. And we call the idea that people are born smart the worst idea ever. And that's because it really is. If you believe that, you know, you didn't get the math gene or you didn't get the charm gene or whatever it is, what ends up happening is you just end up wasting your attention. All of your attention goes on the fact that you can do nothing rather than doing something, literally anything, which will allow you to actually move forward. All right, back to the show. It's key because our audience, my guys, are really... They're the kind of early adopters, as you and I sort of talked about before the show, that really can get the process underway by kind of applying this in their own lives and going, oh, all right, I wasn't born smart, but that's not even a real thing, so who cares now? Well, that's what's been so great, especially about the podcast community. You know, very often we go on these sort of morning shows or, you know, do radio or anything like that. And those are not early adopter people. Like the people who are in the podcast community are really looking for the next wave of ideas. They really want to be ahead of the curve rather than just playing catch up. Yeah. That's exactly what we need at this stage. So many people believe that you just have to be born smart. You know, if your listeners can be the people who really just start applying it to make their own lives better, they will not only help themselves, but they'll really kick off a wave that will eventually catch everybody up to that. And then we get to live in a world where the idea that people are born smart isn't even in the equation. And instead, we focus our time on getting better and doing practice and always pushing and improving ourselves. Sure. You're not saying that talent doesn't exist. Or are you? Well, it's actually very interesting. So uh, there's a book that came out recently called The Sports Gene by Dave Epstein, who was a writer for Sports Illustrated for a long time, and I've interviewed him a couple of times. You know, his book is excellent. And certainly, there are people who are different heights. There is a huge difference between the genders in terms of physical strength. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there are genetic differences. The interesting thing, and this is the point that Malcolm Gladwell made in an article about it, is that when it comes to cognitively complicated tasks, so things like charm and math, things that require thinking, right, not brute strength, right, there's really no way to get around practice for anyone. Like nobody gets some massive shortcut there. It takes effort for everyone. So it's not to say that, you know, by practice, will you be seven foot five? No, you will not. But by practice, can you learn skills? Yes. Practice getting taller. I mean, you know, there are actually places in China where you can have that. I Yeah, that looks extremely (laughs) painful. I guess barring that though, right? See, that's even better because people are always talking about talent and like, Mm -hmm. well, my friend's really talented at this, talented at that. And and I guess we still use the term sort of colloquially or not colloquially when we're talking about art, for example. Mm -hmm. I can't draw things, but you're right. I know the antidote to that, by the way. There's a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Oh, really? I also, my mother uh, was an art historian, and so, you know, she also, in the process of that, is amazing at drawing and yeah. painting and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, I'll never be that, mm-hmm. right? And that's so much of it, is you compare yourself to people who are really, really good and have years of practice yeah. on you, and you're like, well, I'll never be there, so why bother trying? Yeah, it's uh, funny. My mom's an artist and an art teacher, and I can't barely draw a stick yeah. figure, but here's the thing. She likes sitting around and painting things with watercolors, 
I don't like drawing things because I'm bad at it. <laughs> exactly. So naturally, I'm not getting any better at it That's anytime right. soon. That's right. And there's this great book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. The biggest mistake that people when they're drawing make is is that they try and draw their image of a horse or their image of a chair that's in their head rather than just drawing the lines that they see. Interesting. So you're trying to recreate something from your brain rather than something that's in front of you. Exactly. And that's what the book does is it basically teaches you to just draw what's in front of you. And one of the exercises in there that's so great is they take a picture of a horse, they have you try and draw a horse and it's a disaster. And then they have you right. try and draw an upside down horse. And because it's upside down, you no longer are able to impose your idea of a horse on it. And you're forced to just draw line, 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 line. It's the best horse I've ever drawn. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't believe you can draw, try drawing something upside down. And that's the thing. It's a super simple exercise to do. You know, do I feel the need to particularly be the best drawer ever to go on the path, do my 10,000 hours, become Leonardo da Vinci? No. But there's a big difference between thinking that you'll never do something and knowing that you could if you put the time and the effort in. Great. Excellent. So I think that alone is a huge realization, mm -hmm. right? That you can get better at pretty much anything. Languages, yeah. whatever job you're doing, mm -hmm. interacting with the opposite sex, or even something athletic, which people don't ever think about getting good at. Well, and l there are so many great stories. I mean, you know, when you look at a lot of these people, it's, you know, obviously there are short basketball players as well as tall basketball players, but there are also tall basketball players who are incredibly awkward when they start off. Bill Bradley is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And this is one of the things that uh, Robert Greene, who wrote Mastery, right. right, in the 48 Laws of Power, right. he talks about that in his book. Bill Bradley, in order to get better, designed obsessively drills that would focus him on improving specific aspects of his performance. So, for example, he would put on these glasses that would prevent him from seeing forward so that he was forced to develop his peripheral vision. All sounds dangerous. It sounds incredibly I'll be in, dangerous. I'll be in drive with those. <laughs> but he set up these obstacle courses. You know, he would isolate specific parts of his practice. And through obsessive, obsessive practice, he was able to develop... Mm piece by piece by piece, all the skills that ultimately made him one of the great basketball players of all time. Michael Jordan is the same way. You find this again and again and again with athletes that they actually, when you look at the difference between the greats, a huge amount of it is the kind of practice that they're doing. Wow, that's really interesting. So we can actually modify our practice to get better at anything faster. Absolutely. No big surprise there, right? No, but absolutely. And most, most people's practice is dumb. Mm -hmm. What they do is they throw time at the problem. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, and that's a large part of the danger of the 10,000-hour rule is, is that, you know, people talk about the 10,000-hour rule, and yes, that idea, oh, you have to do a lot of practice to get good at things is useful, but people tend to focus on the time aspect of that, right? and so they're like, oh, I just have to reach this number, and they're not focused on what the quality of the practice is. The quality of that practice is, is actually called in the research deliberate practice, what we call in our book, the straight-A conspiracy, fix-it focus practice, because I think deliberate practice is not a particularly intuitive term, but fix-it focus practice is much clearer. And what it's about is you figure out exactly what's not working in your practice, and you focus on fixing it. So if you're learning a language, you realize, oh, I don't know how to use the verb to be. Well, let's focus on that and practice just that. And I'm going to nail the verb to be, and I'm not going to worry about anything else until I've got that 100% down. Or if you're focused on, for example, playing sports, you're like, oh, well, I'm not very good at dribbling. And specifically, I'm not very good at dribbling and maneuvering. So I'm just going to focus on that and get really, really, really good at that. Yeah. But it's a very targeted practice where you're putting your attention on one thing at a time. Interesting. So that makes so much sense. And I feel like everyone goes, duh, when they hear that. And then they turn around and they don't do that. Do that. Right. Exactly. And a large part of that is because in the back of their mind, they have the idea, yeah, but I would never be that great. And it's actually, once you get on the path, on the path to mastery, on the path to understanding how learning works, and that's what this is really all about, is understanding how does learning work. And it's actually fascinating. And it becomes something that you can enjoy every day, is watching your practice, watching other people's practice, and constantly improving your understanding of how greatness is achieved. So taking this and sort of extrapolating it, if we know that we can learn say everybody's sort of good at one particular thing and they've mm -hmm. practiced it and they've worked on the type of practice that they're doing and blah, blah, blah. 
you know, even Counter-Strike or Call of Duty uh-huh. and how those guys get bored of it. So they decide to use a knife only for uh-huh. like the next week and a half or a month and a half because they're easily sniping everybody. So they decide, I'm just going to walk up to people and kill them with this knife, you know, <laughs> and then they're really, really good at it uh-huh. right after all that. If you can learn this one thing, anything, no matter what it is, if you can learn the one thing, you can pretty much learn anything. Is that true? That's right. And that's the amazing thing is all practice really works the same way. And we get distracted by what the skill is and we don't realize, oh, the behavior is all about giving yourself challenges, identifying what's not working. And so very often you'll find people are really good at something, whether it's, you know, video games or whether it's skateboarding or whether it's picking up chicks or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. There's something that they're really good at. And if you just look at the thing that you do well and you copy what you do in that area to every other area of your life, you will be amazing. And that's great, but here's the problem. How do I know what I'm doing when I'm in sort of this flow state? How do I break it down and articulate it? And obviously, one of the things that we do at The Art of Charm and the reason that people come to us instead of just watching guys who are good with people anywhere else is because we can break it down Mm -hmm. and articulate it. But that's really hard, you know? It's really tough. And that's the thing. Part of the reason why you're able to break it down and articulate it is because you've taught it. Right, exactly. One of the best ways to learn how to learn is to teach. So figure out, obviously, you're in the flow state. You're lost in the moment. You're playing Call of Duty or whatever. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, figure out, and you don't have to actually do this, just as an exercise. If you were going to teach someone how to be amazing at Call of Duty, where would you start them? What would you begin with? What would be the exercises that you would give them? And how would you build those skills over time? What are the sort of behaviors that you have? When you fail in Call of Duty, when you die, what do you do? Do you say, I didn't get the Call of Duty gene? Or do you get back up and play the the level again? Right. Good point. Interesting. Yeah. So Jared Diamond, who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is one of the best books ever written, basically uh, told this story about he does a lot of his work in Papua New Guinea. And while he was there, he met a man who was the first man in his village of Stone Age people to learn to read and to write. And his son, this man's son, was the first person in his village to learn to use a computer. Now, these people have gone from the Stone Age to the Information Age in two generations. That's not because they suddenly acquired the writing gene right. or the computer-using gene, the Microsoft Excel gene. Right, yeah. <laughs> what they, nobody has that gene. Nobody has that gene, not even Bill Gates. No. Um, but what it reveals is that the most important thing about the brain is not uh, genetic abilities in specific areas. It's the brain's ability to adapt to any skill, any task. The human brain is so flexible. The thing that I always love, too, I was in one of the big museums in Copenhagen in Denmark. And in there, they have this parka. And it's this parka that was actually made by, like, the Inuits or, you know, some sort of northern tribe at the Arctic. And it looks like it's from the space age. But it's actually made from a walrus intestines. Wow. Now, the thing is, is that, to me, is such a tribute of human ingenuity. Yeah. Because... <laughs> who the heck is like, oh, walrus intestine is this amazing, like, right. heat-retaining, yeah. insulating, yeah. water-resistant material. Unbelievable. But what happened is, is that in any environment that you have put people, whether you've put them in the jungle or you've put them in the desert or you put them in, you know, suddenly in an office in Papua New Guinea and they have to figure out a computer, when people engage in piece-by-piece piece figuring out tasks, people anywhere can figure out literally anything. And that's not because of genetics. It's because we are the species that adapts. We are the species that figures out how to survive in any circumstances. A leopard can only survive in a very narrow set of habitats. Humans right. are even figuring out how to survive in space. Right, and which other is, planets. And, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. And so, yeah, we're kind of predestined for this. And meanwhile, there's a guy walking on Mars at some point in the future who sucks at French. <laughs> Doesn't have the language gene, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, unless he's French, but well, I digress, yeah. But is it, do we really think a Frenchman is going to be? <laughs> All the French people are like, unsubscribe. <laughs> Um, uh, but doesn't know you can say that to a French person. They're still not going to believe you because the French believe they invented everything. Right. So, yeah, that's true. They'll be like, we have already walked on Mars. We just did not tell you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. what is automaticity? Because that's an interesting concept as well. And it's sort of, it, well, not sort of, it's very related to, to mm-hmm. the same topic or same subject matter. Right. So for a long time, scientists thought that the brain was fixed, right? That essentially you were born with a brain and 
in retrospect, the idea to a lot of scientists, there's a book that I was just reading for, by Sandra Chapman, who's uh, a neurologist down in Texas. But, you know, she's talking about how weird it was that for a long time we thought the brain was fixed. It's like, like fixed, you mean stamped in metal, here's your edition, and you're, you're stuck done. with it. Right. When we have educational systems, we teach people to learn to read and write and do oh, math. Right. We know right. that the brain changes and has changed for millennia, for hundreds of thousands of years, for millions of years. So it's weird that we ever thought the brain was fixed, but that is how we used to think of the brain. And now what's happened is, is that the brain is incredibly flexible, we mm -hmm. find out. There's a great book called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. And one of the things that he talks about is, is that in the old days, when people had strokes, we would basically say, sorry, get used to not using the left side of your body yeah, ever again. Right. Now we give them practice. And they, through that practice and through doing very specific activities, and these activities are really weird. They like put oven mitts on the people's hands and they have to like focus on scouring, wax on, wax off style, the really? inside of a pot. But doing that sort of stuff slowly rebuilds basically the centers in the brain that control the left side of the body. And a lot of that function can be regained. And That's this is really after something as traumatic as a stroke. Yeah. So the brain changes. And the most important ability of the human brain is automaticity. If you do anything often enough, it becomes automatic. If you think about when you were born, you could not walk, you could not speak any language, right. you could not read, you could not write, you could not do basic arithmetic, and all of these things are basically automatic for you. Two plus two is not something that you really need to think about. Right. You know, you don't really need to think about your ABCs when you're reading a book or reading an online post or anything like that. Yeah. You're able showering, to, showering is a classic example, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. You think of these brilliant ideas when you're in there because you're not worried about anything else. Exactly. And so what happens is if you think about the example of reading, you put your attention on your ABCs and then you automate them so you don't need to think about them. Right. I don't find myself sounding out Cat. words and emails anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so once you've automated those letters, then you can put your attention on the next thing. Your attention is freed up to be able to focus on words, which you then automate, which then frees up your attention to focus on the next thing. And basically you can keep on leveling up automating right. and then freeing up your attention until eventually you no longer need to think about the mechanics of reading things. And now you can focus on reading things with lots of unfamiliar words, right? right? Or, or you other can, languages or other languages yeah. or whatever it may be. But all the time, what you're doing is, is that you are making it so you don't have to think about things. You're making those behaviors basic and automatic. And you're saying we can do that pretty much with anything. Uh, I'm not. That's what the research right. says. Okay. <laughs> My opinion is that science is right yeah. and says that you're totally, yeah, okay. Yeah, gotcha. and that's the, that's the amazing thing. And on our website, thestraightaconspiracy.com, mm -hmm. there's a thing you can download there that is the science behind the straight A conspiracy. And that's the point. You don't have to believe me. Right. I think so often. Because you're kind of sketchy, so yeah, I don't I really necessarily, <laughs> yeah. But the science is behind it. That's one of yeah. the reasons I, I wanted to have you here so badly is because it's not just like, I think that if you eat lots of nutritious vegetables, mm -hmm. you'll get smarter and be able to learn faster, which actually is a thing, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. But this isn't uh, snake oil. It's just like the latest research, and you explain it well. That's the point that I think is missing, mm -hmm. is we need people to... It's great that all these scientists are looking at their very specific piece of the problem, but the interesting conclusions always have come when you take large fields of data and put them together. That's yeah. what Darwin did. That's what Newton did. That's when you start to see those really interesting conclusions. And what we need is we need to do that more. And we need people who synthesize that data, form conclusions, and then communicate that to the public so that we can actually apply it in our lives. The amazing thing is, is that very, very often the answers are known. We know that you have to look at your mistakes if you want to get better. Right. And yet, you know, we spend all of this time throwing iPads at children, right? Hoping that that's going to fix their education when right. the first thing we should do is be like, no, 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 no. When you get your test back, you don't bury it in the bottom of your backpack. Right. You get it out, you figure out what you did wrong, and you fix that because that's all learning is. Right. But like the intent of your bad grade is not to make you feel bad and then have your dad spank you. Yeah. Right. The point is to know that, hey, you're really bad at fractions <laughs> and you should probably look at those that's and right. fix it. Yeah. That's right. And use that to improve. And that's the great thing about all of this stuff is, is that the point is to take your self-worth out of the equation. Your self-worth is safe. Everybody has automaticity. Everybody has attention. 
If you've ever learned anything, we know you have automaticity and attention. So let's put all the doubts aside. Let's not waste our time doing that. And let's just focus on fixing one thing at a time because your attention is your most valuable resource. The only thing you can do is focus on using your attention as well as you can. And that's great because I, you know, supposedly have ADD, which I don't necessarily know if that's a real thing or not. But I didn't take pills for it until I was an adult, and then I did, and I was like, these are just drugs, but they're kind of awesome. <laughs> but I'm, it's a little worrisome because when kids take them, my ex-girlfriend's little brothers used to take them, and it was kind of like how they got through school. But here's the thing. They weren't bad kids, and they certainly weren't dumb. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wondered why we were medicating her brothers all the time, and it was because they were in school. They're not paying attention and stuff, and I'm like, but they're really smart. It just seems like a bad idea. And, you know, I'm no doctor, so... I wasn't thinking about it that much yeah. 10 years ago when I, we were together, but now it seems like a terrible idea to do that. And when I was younger, I focused on a lot of problems and I had trouble concentrating for sure, like every other kid. I'm so glad I didn't create a drug dependence because mm-hmm. of that issue. I'm not a doctor, but yeah. I've read books by doctors. And there's a book called... That's the next best thing, yeah, right? absolutely. It's basically, the, again, living in a basement with no bell guy. <laughs> it all rubs off. It all rubs off. Yeah, it all I went rubs to school off. with a kid, actually, who used to try and say that he was essentially a medical authority because his father was a doctor. Yeah, nice yeah, try. Yeah, yeah, nice try, yeah. dude, right? <laughs> but, no, no, really. He's a gynecologist. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, Close your eyes. <laughs> there is a really great book called Boys Adrift. And it's essentially about, you know, boys in general, you know, ladies are kicking our ass. They're Mm -hmm. doing really, really well in college. They're going ahead. And the question is why? And one of the things that he really takes a look at is ADHD, which is overwhelmingly, you know, something that is very, very common in men and relatively uncommon in women. And the interesting thing is, is that they did a study where they gave... ADHD meds to people who had been diagnosed with ADHD and people who definitely did not fit the diagnosis. Okay. And it had the same effect. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because these are really, really powerful drugs and they're very nonspecific. They're essentially speed. Yeah, it's speed. (laughs) And that's why I took it in law school and why medical students were like, yo, I will buy all of that from you for $1,000. It didn't matter if you had ADD or not. It yeah. made you study more. That's period. right. Done. So it's not that speed doesn't work. Yes, speed does work, but it's mm-hmm. not specific. The real interesting thing is, is that there's a lot of pretty compelling evidence that what it does over the long term is, is that it can burn out your motivational systems. I'm quite sure of that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Especially when you wean yourself off of it, mm-hmm. you don't want to do shit. It's like weaning yourself off coffee only you drink 10 cups of coffee every morning, right? Yeah. And then one day you go, I'm not drinking I'm this done. anymore. Yeah. You wake up and you go, FML, I'm not even getting out of bed. Right. And that's what it was like with me and Adderall. Mm-hmm. My ex-girlfriend was like, don't take it on the weekends. Mm-hmm. You know, just save it because you might need twice as much during study periods. And also because it's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, even back then we kind of had this feeling like maybe you shouldn't take it every day. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to see how when I didn't take it, I was mostly fine. But if I went during finals, and then I stopped taking it during the summer period, I was not fine. Right. That was kind of proof that I didn't need it, need it, but I definitely needed it when I overdid it, and then tried to quit. Right. It's just to understand that this is a really, really powerful drug. And as with any powerful drug, there may be consequences. And so you should really think about whether you're going to use them. There's also a lot of research that's been done on exercise. And exercise helps fix a lot of these problems without having to do drugs. And if you want to read more about that, there's a book called Spark by Dr. John Rady. But there's, in general, what we hit up again and again is there's just such a disparity between the research and what the public knows. Yeah. And before we start resorting to, you know, drugs or, you know, putting electricity through our brains or anything like yeah. that, why don't we just focus on the fact that, oh, because of what we believe, we don't look at our mistakes. Because of what we believe, we're not doing effective practice. Because of what we believe, we don't manage our emotions and therefore we spend our time feeling like we'll never be better, so why bother? That's so that's so interesting because I'm totally guilty of that. Now back to the good stuff. The one thing that made me quit taking Adderall, mm-hmm. which, well, doing drugs, essentially, <laughs> right? can't remember the exact story. Actually, I think he was American, but the, he had read a story that week about a Canadian kid who had, like, mm-hmm. died at age 17 from taking Adderall because mm-hmm. his heart just didn't like speed. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> right? And he's like, listen, now all these doctors are like, see, I told you it's bad for you. He finally did. And then as he handed me the prescription, he walked all the way to the front of the student clinic at the University of Michigan and went, 
please don't take this. And I was like, okay, he's not just like, hey, man, this is bad for you. He was like, please don't overuse this. Mm -hmm. Because he just didn't want to read about how, you know, I croaked because I took his prescription that he didn't want to give me. And so I took that prescription and... I like, I remember hanging onto it for weeks and weeks and then just throwing it away. Yeah. Because I thought, okay, I'm just lying to myself right now because he's the doctor and all the research says this is bad for you. I know it's bad for you. I'm just done with it. I'm done Mm -hmm. with it. So I knew that I could just kind of cope because I'd grown up my whole life being more or less okay Mm -hmm. in school and I got through college Mm -hmm. without it and thought it really is all clearly about the way that you think about problems. And when I felt all that motivation from that stuff and the pills and the drugs and things like that, and I just sort of tried to fake it till I made it, I was doing okay then mm-hmm. too. And even when I changed my study habits so that I wasn't in a living hell studying all the time, and I figured out how to study for the bar exam by listening to audio instead of reading, which I hate doing, mm-hmm. I was fine. Mm-hmm. You know, And I thought, oh my God, you mean to tell me that what if I, all of my lessons were on an iPod yep. for my whole life? School could have been a completely different game for me. Of course. And that's the thing is there are so many basic things that we can do. Like look at our practice. How Mm -hmm. are we practicing? What works for us? What doesn't work for us? How can we improve our practice? You know, and it's important for to keep harping on this is mistakes. People avoid their mistakes. And that is your biggest friend. That points you right to where improvement's going to come from. Absolutely. And we talked earlier as well about emotions Mm -hmm. and that sort of being this like nuclear fuel for the learning process. And and that's really important because a lot of people are like, okay, look at practice. All right, I'm going to look at my practice. Ugh. (laughs) You know, and that's like the conclusion that they get from looking at their practice. How do we then go, oh, this actually sounds interesting. And it's funny because looking back after talking to you before the show, I sort of thought about things that worked for me years ago, learning difficult things like law and studying Mm -hmm. for the bar exam and things that didn't. And there were people who studied for the bar and read all this stuff and wrote all these practice essays and stuff. What I did is I ordered the iPod version, which Mm -hmm. was one, more expensive, and two, you had to prove that you couldn't make it to any review class for the bar exam. (laughs) And the only way that uh, I was able to do that was to actually book a flight itinerary for another country in the Caribbean (laughs) and show them a hotel thing. I mean, talk about crooked. Yeah, right. They did not want to send this to me because Uh they want you to go to their class even though it's less expensive because they know you're not going to steal the IP. Oh. And they're afraid that if you have this iPod, mm-hmm. you're going to take the stuff and on, run and put yeah. it on the internet. I actually said, I'm going to be in the Caribbean. Look, I've got proof. Da, 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 mm-hmm. da. And I sat there on the beach studying for the bar exam and I killed it. Yeah. And I thought, I've never been good at stuff like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and part of the reason was I was in a really relaxing, nice place yeah, on a absolutely. beach. Learning and absorbing information with my eyes closed getting a killer tan, (laughs) hanging out with my friends at night. It was very strange because, I don't know about you, but when I was going to school, it was like, if you're not freaking out, you're not working hard enough. Well, and that's the interesting thing, is we talk so much about, you ask people who are in high school, you know, you ask people who are in their 20s and 30s. You ask people, oh, you know, how do you make it? And they're like, oh, you have to work really hard. Like, it's all about working hard. And really what we mean is, you have to be stressed out. Like, if you want to succeed, you have to be stressed out. Sure. Well, guess what? Being stressed out is the most effective way to ensure that you're not learning because you're in a state of stress Uh, inside of your brain there's a thing called the amygdala and that controls your fear response sure and when people say i was so scared i couldn't think that's literally true we know that's true your amygdala fires up and shuts down your attention which in a historical context made a lot of sense right if you see a scary snake you want to get dumb real fast. Yeah. You want your IQ to drop 100 points and run. And run. You don't and... want to go, you know what? I'm pretty sure that's a harmless garden snake. <laughs> but let and... me check by sticking my hand in its mouth, Steve Irwin. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? No, I think if I, if I come in from the side <laughs> angle, he won't be able to yeah. get me. Yeah. No, you get dumb real fast and you run away. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that in the context of learning, if you're doing math, well, a math test can't kill you. The bar exam can't kill you. You know, none of these experiences that we're having, like trying to pick up a girl can't kill you the worst that happens i mean unless she's like serbo-croatian and like has like she mafia yeah right, yeah then, then she might but in general it's not going to kill you all you're going to do is be embarrassed or fail or yeah. whatever so being afraid in that situation is the worst thing you can do right and literally the worst that's why we have people who are like i'm a bad test taker mm-hmm. it's like you are because as soon as you get the pressure, you freak out and you can't That's think right. even though you already know all of the information. That's right. You're in a state of fear. And yeah. guess what? Human beings, all human beings in a state of fear are dumb. 
Yeah. And so that what we need to change is we don't need to change the test taking gene, which guess what? There is no test taking gene yeah. because, you know, nobody has ever had any sort of selection pressure to evolve the ability to test take. Right. That's not how it works. That's so funny. Yeah, it's so true. And it makes perfect sense. Again, looking at my bar exam experience uh, the day before the exam. I got a call from Northwest that was like, your flight's been canceled because there's no crew, blah, 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 mm -hmm. strike, union, dot, 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 whatever. I thought it was a prank call. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, why would my flight be canceled? And mm -hmm. also, this is a friend of mine trying to get a, a rib in me a little bit. I called everybody I knew. Nobody was going there. I, mm -hmm. It was snowing in Canada, and that's the quickest way to get to New York, and I'm in Detroit. So I woke up, AJ, and I was like, dude, can you drive me to New York right now? And he was like, hold on. Because it was like, you know, 8.30 a.m. or something. We drove there. We got there late. The hotel we ended up going to was full, and I couldn't get a room there. There was another place that we did get a room in. It was uber sketchy. Uh -huh. And then I found out that me being a dumbass, I went to Albany, but the bar exam was in Manhattan, which is 99% of people take it in Albany. Yeah. 1% take it in Manhattan. I didn't notice that I got like bumped and switched yeah, yeah, to Manhattan, yeah, yeah. which would have been really convenient because I could have gotten there really easily <laughs> yeah. and gotten a hotel really easily in New yeah. York. And so I was freaking out. So by the time I walked into the bar exam, there were cops there and stuff because it's like a really serious right, test. Right. So I'm like, I need to talk to somebody about it. And they're like, hold on now. We'll let you take your exam in a couple hours. Why don't you go relax? And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I have a ticket for the yeah. wrong exam. I can't just like sit down. So finally, I saw somebody. I was like, help me. And this guy's like, what? And he walks out and he's like, all right, all right, I'll take care of you. So my nerves were so frazzled. And he goes, you know what you need to do? You need to just calm down. You're going to be fine. I'm going to take mm -hmm. care of you. I told him the whole story of how I drove and everything. And he goes, listen, you already did the hard part. Now you just have to take the test. And that was the best advice I've ever gotten in mm -hmm. my life because I had burned out my stores of adrenaline and all this stuff. So by the time I sat down to that test, I just went, you know what, if I fail, I have every good excuse in the world. Right. My employer's not going to be mad at me. My parents aren't going to be mad at me. I'm not even going to be mad at myself mm -hmm. because I tried really hard to get here. I busted my ass. If I take it on three hours of sleep in the wrong venue, no one's going to be like, you're an idiot. You know. Right. And so I took the test totally chill. Yeah. And I killed it. And that's the thing. It's not just the effective study on the beach. It's also the fact that you were in the right emotional state to be able to perform. Absolutely, which you is know? kind of a miracle, but I just burned well, out everything. But the, that's the interesting thing is, is that it can change so quickly. Like you go from being one of the more stressed out humans in history to being one of the more relaxed humans in history mm -hmm. in a matter of a second. And that's because you switch your perspective. Yes. And that's all it takes to change your emotional state is to change your perspective. The story we always like to tell is, you know, you're driving along, right? It's L.A. The traffic is horrific. And, you know, there's some a-hole, you know, four cars back and he's weaving through traffic. And he's like cutting in front of everyone. And you're like, who's this jerk? Like, we all have somewhere to be. Why are you doing this? And all of a sudden, the guy pulls up alongside you. And you see that next to him in the passenger seat is his heavily pregnant right. significant other. And she's clearly in labor. And then the next thing, in one second, you go from kind of trying to obstruct him and hoping that he gets a flat tire to moving out of the way and right. driving erratically because you want him to get through. Right. And all you have to do in order to manage your emotions is basically reset, right? You can reset your emotions by changing your perspective. And so how do we start to change our perspective? Because it can be really tough to be facing a final exam that's 100% of your grade in law school, medical school, and then go, you know what? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm calm now. Thanks. Well, all right? you have to do is you just, it's really simple. You step back and you think about different ways that you could look at the situation. Mm -hmm. And then you see which one is going to make you the most calm. You play around with it. You play around with your perspective. So, for example, you're stressed out in the exam and, you know, you could tell yourself, oh, I've done everything I can to study. Or, oh, it's going to be so funny if after all of this, I then kick the exam's ass because then it's going to be, you know, a great story to tell. Or, you know, like the guy said, I've done the hard part. This is the easy part. Or I've already won because I just beat all of that. And this exam cannot be harder than getting from Detroit to New York under right. those circumstances. Right. There are lots and lots of ways to look at the situation. And you get to choose whatever perspective is going to put you in the emotional state that best serves the context. So basically, if we find ourselves freaking out before tests and things like that, we should start going, all right, so if I fail, then what? And just 
maybe play around with working yourself up to visualizing that whole thing and then going, oh, well, I already kind of went through that emotional mm-hmm. experience and here I am. Right. And I have a chance to not fail. So I'm good. Exactly. Or, which is what I used to do. Oh my God, if I fail this, I'll have to, well, retake this class. I already know all the content. <laughs> yeah, I already exactly. have the notes taken. Probably can just retake the test at the end of the term and mm-hmm. not worry about it. Yeah. Or write a paper about it because they don't want to fail you. Mm-hmm. They don't want to fail anybody. That's right. And then it's, it was like, well, that's not so bad. And also if I, one of the things that got me through law school was, I could fail everything, and I don't really want to be a lawyer, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> exactly. And I crushed most of the exams because people were in there like, oh, my God, oh, my God, if That's I don't get right. this, I'm going to get a B, and then if I get the low grade, then I won't be able to interview, and I won't get my Wall Street job. So I went in there going, I don't give a shit if I get a job in this field. And that's what's so funny is very often there are these kids who, you know, are in high school who don't give a shit. Yeah. And they do amazingly. And we're like, it's so easy for them. And it's like, no, right, they're Because calm. he's quote unquote talented. talented. Meanwhile, he's like, no, it's because I want to grow weed for a living <laughs> and, or whatever, you know, your friend is thinking. Yeah. And you're thinking, how come this person is so great at this? And it's because he's like, his dad's rich. Yeah, so he's he doesn't calm. Care. He's yeah. relaxed. He doesn't care. And so that's the thing is, is that once you move from focusing on genetics, the idea that there's a math gene or a natural ear for languages or, you know, natural charm or whatever it is, and you start looking at what's going on with yourself and with other people emotionally, that totally opens up so many doors. Because you realize that rather than it being a permanent problem of genetics, you can't change your genes, it's a really, really easy problem to fix, which is to change how you're feeling about things, which is as simple as changing your perspective. Excellent. So what can guys start to do? Obviously, change your perspective. Mm -hmm. What other sort of action points, takeaways do we have for our guys here? Well, I think the most important thing is throw out the worst idea ever. Right. The idea that people are born smart or are naturally good at things, well, guess what? There's zero evidence to back that up. In 2010, uh, Nature Reviews Neuroscience published a review of what we know about the genetics of intelligence. So far, they have found 300 genes for mental retardation, right? Things like Down syndrome, well-established conditions and zero genes for normal to above average intelligence. Wow. Okay. That's pretty fascinating. That's pretty fascinating. Now, the point so is... So if you thought you maybe were just average, you're probably just retarded. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, there's an old saying in science, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. It doesn't mean that no gene will ever be found. But the important thing is, is that certainly you should think twice before you decide that something's genetic because right. there's so far no evidence to back those ideas up. Great. And most importantly, again, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, it's not about natural abilities. It's about automaticity. That's the big takeaway. It's the fact that the brain is flexible. Even people who are born with things like dyslexia, through the right kind of practice, they can overcome that because the brain is so flexible that it can acquire pretty much any ability that you want it to. So even if you're still skeptical, the important thing is, is that thinking about what you can't do is a waste of intention. Like if you think you, that's a good point. Never really thought about that. And if you think that you can never learn a particular language, like you can never learn French or whatever, or you can't learn Mandarin or whatever language it is you want to do, instead of having that thought, which is utterly worthless and gets you nothing, learn a word, learn a phrase, learn how to say hello. Congratulations. Where you would have gotten nothing, you just got something. And if you keep on doing that piece by piece by piece, well, guess what? You're going to end up getting a lot better than you would have if you sat around feeling like you would never be good at it. It sort of leads into the next point, which you are really big on, which is embracing mistakes, embracing Mm -hmm. failure. Why is that so important? I mean, we talk about it a lot, fail faster, do things, Mm -hmm. you know, make mistakes. It's it's tough because sometimes our egos come into play, and I was going to bring that up earlier, where, like, it means something. We always attach some sort of weird meaning. It might be a cultural thing, but I think guys do it especially. Mm -hmm. We equate failure with some sort of reflection of our moral yeah absolutely absolutely we think it's about us and it's really not about us when a plane crashes the faa the federal aviation administration what do they do they get out all the wreckage they lay it out in the hangar listen to the black box flight recorder right and they figure out why it went wrong and they figure out what they need to do to make sure that it doesn't happen and guess what the result of dealing with mistakes like that is that mile for mile you are safer flying than you are walking right right (laughs) you know like something as complicated and difficult as flying has been made, I mean, really incredibly safe through that kind of practice. And that's the kind of practice we all need. But again, we're human. Emotions are really important. And studying and looking at things that you already do well feels good. Mm -hmm. Looking at things that you're not good at is uncomfortable. Well, you've got a choice. You can either embrace that discomfort and get really, really good at them, 
or you can avoid that discomfort and stay at the same level of skill that you're already at. Right. And nobody who's achieved greatness that we can really point out has gone, you know what? I'm pretty good at this already. <laughs> I'm not going to work on this anymore. Right. Yeah. You look at musicians or athletes, even guys who seem incredibly talented, LeBron James, as far as I know, doesn't go, I don't think I'm going to practice anymore. I kind of got this. Yeah, and I recently heard a story basically about a really, really famous movie maker, one of the most famous movie makers of all time. You know, he had a very successful career, made some really of the greatest movies of all time. And I know someone who was working with him sort of when his career had basically like he'd fallen off the map. As they were going through the script, you know, they would come along, they would be working through the script, working through the script, and then they would get to a place in the story where there was an obvious problem. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, let's go get lunch. And when they would pick up, it would always be right after the problem. Like, that's where they would restart. Oh, no. And so you see this guy who clearly knows how to practice and knows how to work and do all that sort of stuff. But essentially, the idea that he's this sort of magical, iconic filmmaker has ruined his practice. Yeah. He's now not comfortable with mistakes. And when you see these top performers sort of drop off, it's essentially because now they've bought into the worst idea ever. Yeah. They've bought into the idea that they are born smart, they are special, and that makes them uncomfortable with making mistakes. Oh, that's interesting, because not only is it the worst idea to think that other people are born smart and we don't have it, mm -hmm. it's just as bad, if not worse, to think... I was born with exactly. it, so I don't need to worry about my practice. That's right. Uh, I didn't even think about it that yeah. way. And, th and you see a lot of kids who are you know, diagnosed as being in gifted programs. Well, guess what? Their lives end up becoming disasters. You hear about that all the time, time too, yeah. right? And it's because they think they're so special, and therefore they can't fail. They don't feel comfortable failing because it becomes you know, this invalidation of their self-worth and this invalidation of their specialness, which is so important to them. So in general, throw out the worst idea ever and really focus on mistakes because guess what? Your mistakes aren't you. We always say in terms of, you know, you get a red X on a test, right? When yeah. you get something wrong, well, X marks the spot. That's exactly where improvement is available to you. That's the fastest way to improve is by dealing with the things that you do worst. Yeah. And God, that feels awkward sometimes, yeah. right? I had a friend back in law school. He went, I'm doing this couch to 5K running plan. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh my God, running. I suck at running. Mm -hmm. It's awful. And he goes, you should do it. It feels really good. I started this couch to 5K. And I mean, this was like literally jog 30 seconds, <laughs> walk 90 seconds for the first two weeks. And it says, don't try to skip ahead. Don't try to. So I, I of course, I started off. I skipped ahead. Didn't work. So I went, okay, fine. So then I did it again. Didn't skip ahead. I was running 5K six days a week within 90 days to 120 days. Yeah. And he had quit, of course, but, mm -hmm. you know, as most people do. But honestly, then I sort of became really into running. And I remember mm -hmm. calling the running store in January with like a snowstorm outside. And I said, is it safe for me to run right now? Mm -hmm. And they were like, actually run on lawns and stuff because the sidewalks are packed down with ice. Right. Try to ro run in the road if you can, because uh -huh. at least it's salted. But they're like, you're addicted, huh? And I was like, yeah. And I just started. And they're like, that's great. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, who am I? Mm -hmm. It's freezing outside. Mm -hmm. I hate running and I can't not do it. Except you don't. Now. I don't. And that's, and I'm good at it. Yeah. You know, and it's like all of these things The chemical that's released when we learn something, which is also the chemical that's released when we exercise and, you know, eat ice cream and all that sort of stuff is dopamine. Right. Like we are naturally addicted to learning. Sure. It's the greatest drug in the world because it's the only drug that will make your life consistently better. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. you get to feel amazing and you get to get more and more and more and more awesome over time. But the thing that messes up the learning process is that people take their mistakes personally. They feel stupid. It's essentially the worst idea ever. Like if you get that out of the way, then what you end up having is, is that it becomes this virtuous cycle where you just get better and better and better and better at everything. And life just gets more and more exciting and more and more interesting because the world is fascinating. And there are some really incredible things out there. And some of them are finding out that LBJ had a massive dick that he called Jumbo. And that he... <laughs> I did not see yeah. that coming yeah. in this podcast. And some of them are finding out that, you know, in fact, English is this weird mix of French and Germanic languages right. or whatever it is. The world is fascinating. And some of it is profane and some of it is inspiring. And much like this podcast. That's actually. right. And but learn it all, like embrace all of human experience, because if you only embrace sort of the intellectual, well, you're missing out on the profane, which is fascinating. And if you only embrace the profane, you're missing out of the intellectual, which is also fascinating. You should have it all and you shouldn't have any barriers on your learning or your growth or your progress.
which is basically throwing out the idea that it has anything to do with you. It has everything to do with what you're doing. Thanks so much, Hunter. This has been amazing. Much appreciated. Yeah. You guys can find out more from you at thestraightaconspiracy.com. We're obviously going to link that in the show notes, mm-hmm. along with your Twitters, because you got more than one here. <laughs> And uh, the book as well. If only having more than one Twitter was actually impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got multiple Twitters. No big deal. Yeah. One one thing that I would like to throw in, just as a yeah. last thought, is at the beginning you said, you know, it sounds so amazing and it sounds so out there that I kind of wonder if you'd made it up. And that's why we called it the straight-A conspiracy. Because what this is really all about is, is what we're feeling. It's what we feel is true for us. And we don't feel... Like, I could do anything that I want. And so that is basically the conspiracy is our own feelings get in the way of us getting engaged and going on that road. So for anybody who feels like this isn't true or isn't true for them, great. Listen to that feeling and look at what that feeling makes you do. Mm -hmm. And look at when that feeling is different and you feel like you can be great how you behave. Bingo. That's the issue. It's your emotional life, and it's getting to the state of getting past what you feel and focusing on the facts of what you're doing. Excellent. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming to L.A. for me. Uh, Yeah, my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that show as much as I enjoyed recording it. That one was really good. I mean, a little heady in some areas, but I love the ideas behind it. Again, we talked about why having certain genes for certain talents is actually totally false and an excuse that a lot of people use not to learn, and how perspective and attitude can change the way that you learn entirely. How we need to get rid of the worst idea ever, the idea that people are born smart, you either have it or you don't, or maybe you're one of those people who thinks they were born smart and therefore doesn't have to put the work in. We also talked about why stories of early genius are marketing devices and the 10,000-hour rule about the quality of practice versus the actual amount. We also covered emotions as fuel for learning, how you can learn anything no matter who you are, changing your perspective to change your results, thinking about why what you can't do is a waste of your intention, and of course, the power of failure and embracing mistakes, as well as what ideas do to your practice and the choices that you make. Thanks again, Hunter Montz of the Straight A Conspiracy. Links to the book in the show notes, as well as the website and is his Twitter as well. So I really hope you guys dug this one, and I'll see you next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us if you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash theartofcharm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.